But uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that we're back in 1 Corinthians this evening. So uh, if you want, you can take your Bibles and uh, follow with me back to 1 Corinthians. We finished, uh, I think, I guess uh, three weeks or so ago. We finished chapter 3, and so that brings us to begin 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our, our text tonight is really going to be that first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. Um, so make your way there. And as you're, as you're turning, just, just by way of introduction, um, I, want to, I want to read a couple of lengthy sections from a book that uh, that we actually studied. I don't know, how, how many of you were here when we read through uh, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing uh, changing you? you? Like three people, wow. Um, this, this is proof of how transient this ministry is. But um, yeah, Crossway published this book by Tony Ranke called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And he has some really helpful insights um, by the way, just uh, full disclosure, th- tonight is in somewhat of a preview, you could say, even to our uh, beach retreat on the topic of the fear of man. And you'll see how this ties in. But, but listen to what Tony Ranke says. He, he makes some very pointed, relevant observations for us, especially this, this generation, right? This, our demographic, about the temptations of social media regarding issues that the world, I would say, describe as self-image. Ever heard that? Listen to what he says. And these are, these are lengthy quotes, but, but they're very fascinating, so follow with me. He says this, Meet Asina O'Neill, who, as a 19-year-old Australian model, accumulated 500,000 Instagram followers. 19. Once poised to make a career from online endorsement deals in 2015, she called it quits. Deleted most of her pictures and revised the remaining descriptions to unmask the true motives behind the images. Mostly sponsored product placements. And why the drastic move? Well, Asina, um, Ranky writes, had come to see that her online life was hollow, fake, and self-centered. Quote, over-sexualization, perfect food photos, perfect travel vlogs, it is textbook how I got famous, she admitted. But it was all part of a downward spiral she came to regret. She says again, quote, everyone goes through life differently. Myself growing up with social comparing, so easily available, it consumed me. I spent ages 12 through 16 wishing I was someone else. Then I spent ages 16 through 19 constantly molding myself, editing and self-promoting the best parts of my life, which turned into a massive career based on numbers and how I looked aesthetically. Today, Asina said, I simply no longer, listen to this language, want to compare my life with anyone else's edited highlights. How many of you know that struggle? And that, that's, you know, she, of course, exhibits somebody who took it to an extreme and found out just how empty that was. But Ranke then goes on in his book to say this. And I think this is so insightful. Listen to this. While there are many one another's in the Bible, 
compare one another is not one of them. And yet this is the direction we tilt online. We celebrate celebrities. We disdain nobodies. With those most like us, we grow envious and harsh. We live between facades of online confidence that resemble flimsy stage sets. Quote, social media as the current system of numbers and money dictates is not genuine life, writes Asino O'Neill, the former Instagram model we met earlier. It's purely contrived images and edited clips ranked against each other. It's a sad, it's a system based on social approval, likes and dislikes, validation and views, success and followers. It's perfectly orchestrated judgment. We go online to compare one another. We chide one another. We become jealous of one another. And when we get dirt on one another, we fall into perfectly orchestrated judgment against one another. And there's always an app for that. How do I read that? Um, I mean, I'm sure that so many of us can relate to that. And that, that, that far more than we would perhaps like to admit to what Tony Ranke is putting his finger on here. And listen, even if you don't struggle with the social media form of this, the reality is you've likely at some point in your life been guilty of comparing yourself to someone else. Maybe in your heart uh, you've You've, you've sized someone up, so to speak, in terms of their usefulness, giftedness, their wealth, their beauty, their career, their popularity, their personality, their style, their influence, their intelligence, their coolness or their success. And you've, just try, you've placed yourself next to them and compared yourself with them even if you haven't done that on an online platform. Maybe it's in the recess of your own heart. And as you compared yourself to them, maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've experienced the pride, listen, of superiority because you, upon concluding your evaluation and examination of that person, whoever they are, you have determined that you were better than them. Ever done that? Or or maybe after comparison, you've actually experienced the opposite, which I would say is actually still a form of pride. It's not the pride of superiority. It's the pride of self-pity because you concluded that they were better than you. And you couldn't stand that. And so you you're depressed and discouraged about your life and your situation and your gifts and who you are and who God made you to be. Look, if you've ever struggled with, with any of that, whether the social media form of it or just in real life, relationships, coveting, I hope and pray this text will be of great service to you because it has been to me, even before I studied it this Uh, this week, but it's been a go-to passage for me for years just in terms of this issue of 
what we'll just call tonight the problem or in the pride of horizontal comparison. That's an issue. And it's pride at the core. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, is going to take this problem head on. You see, this was a massive issue at the church in Corinth. And we've already seen that before in our study. If you've been with us, you remember the Corinthians um, were a problematic bunch. It was a difficult church. And this kind of pride of horizontal comparison was rampant in their ministry. And it specifically showed itself in, uh, by way of disputes and quarrels that led to disunity in the church. You remember, they, they, were, they were fighting one another. They were jockeying for position, even using their spiritual gifts as competition with each other. For who is better, who is more spiritual, who is wiser, who is more impressive. And as a result, factions were forming around certain personalities and people. Maybe you remember the first indication we had of this was 1 Corinthians 1, verses 11 and 12. You can just glance back there just to jog your memory. But we read for the first time what Paul had come to be aware of in, about that situation in Corinth. He says, For I have been informed concerning you, there are quarrels among you. Here's the comparison. That, that, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. In fact, that same report of factions is mentioned later in chapter 3, where Paul labels it jealousy and strife. You see, though there there was no social media at the time, there still had followers. But there was no social media at the time. The Corinthians were fighting over and following who they perceived and judged to be most significant, popular, influential, whatever you want to say. Even in ministry, they were doing this. I mean, that that, that can happen, right? I, I am of... I, I am of Paul Washer. I, I am of John MacArthur. I am of Vodi Bakum. On and on it can go. This celebrity Christianity, it's really the world's thinking crept into the church. In fact, you, you could look ahead even to chapter 4, verse 6, which will be a next time, but where Paul says, look, they, they had become, and here it is, arrogant in behalf of one against another. So he has to ask them in the very next verse, verse 7, who regards you as superior? Who regards you as superior? Why are you comparing people to people and making judgments about who's better? This person. No, this person. Me, not you. That, that is unmistakably the language of horizontal comparison you see, much like social media today, the Corinthians were eaten up with their own culture of celebrityism, and they brought that into the church. They were pitting leaders against one another, like an American Idol kind of competition, right? This is what Paul now seeks to directly address in our passage. And he does so, listen, by using himself along with 
the other leaders that the Corinthians were dividing over as examples. Notice verse 6. Again, now these things, brethren, after writing our section, he says, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So he's clearly using himself and Apollos and and, and the other leaders and pastors as an example to teach the Corinthians a lesson. And so let's see what we can learn. Let's learn with them from Paul's example here about the pride of horizontal comparison. Let me read the passage in its entirety. Then I'll give you our outline. Notice what he says. Verse 1, let, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required as stewards that one be found trustworthy. But, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Well, here Paul is going to give us three humbling reminders to discourage us from the pride of horizontal comparison. Three humbling reminders. I'll give them to you up front, then we'll walk through number one, if you're taking notes. Three humbling reminders to discourage the pride of horizontal comparison. And the first is this. You're not in the right position to judge one another. You're not in the right position. Verses 1 and 2. This is a reminder of who we are. To judge ourselves rightly. To think soberly about our position. You're not in the right position to judge. Verses 1 and 2. Second, you, you, you don't have all the right knowledge. You don't have all the information. You don't have the full picture to judge another person, to compare yourself with that guy or that girl or that Instagram person. You don't see everything. Verses 3 and 4. This is, this is a, a call, really a reminder by Paul to, to think soberly about what you know, what you think you know. And then third, lastly, it's, it's not the right time to judge one another, verse 5. It's not, the, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. In other words, this is a call really um, to think soberly about and humbly about the season in which you exist, in which you are seeking to make definitive calls and judgments. I know I am better than this person right now. That's problematic, and so Paul's going to tell us that it's, it's also not the right time. So uh, those are your three points. You're not in the right position to judge, verses 1 and 2. You're, you don't have the right knowledge to judge, verses 3 and 4, and it's not the right time to judge, verse 5.
Okay, let's walk through them quickly. Maybe we'll, well, (laughs) humbling reminder number one. I've learned to just not say that. Uh, (laughs) Humbling reminder number one, you're, you're not in the right position to judge one another. Verses one and two. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And notice first how Paul says men should regard our position. Now, think about this. He, he says this then. In, in summary, he says this. We are not sovereigns. We are servants and stewards. You, you're, you, you're not in the position in the least bit, to level any kind of judgment upon your brother or sister. Um, we are rather servants and stewards. And, and, and the command here right out of the gate is to regard. Um, Paul is saying, look, uh, it means to consider or to reckon or to count something to be true. But it's the same language even that we use of our justification. Like that, that, that in God's sight, we have been counted righteous. That is, that is your position in Christ. And Paul is saying the same here. You must count your, ourselves. We must count ourselves for that is, this is what we truly are. This is our position. We are considered. We are to be reckoned. We are to be regarded Listen, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, if you're the CEO of a company, if you're the first in your class, if you're the most athletic in your class, if you're the best looking in this room, regardless of all of that, Paul says, we are counted and considered, reckoned servants and stewards. In reality, that is what we are. Paul is very deliberate here to point out exactly where we fall in the company org chart. (laughs) And none of us are at the top. Therefore, none of us, the implication here is none of us have the ultimate authority to legitimately audit or evaluate one another as if the standard belonged to us. And so look, even as an apostle, Paul is saying this of himself. He too, along with Apollos and Peter, were merely, notice the first term, servants of Christ. Servants. By the way, you might say, hey, I've heard that word before. Where have I heard that? Well, verse, uh, well chapter 3, right? Um, verse 5, where Paul has already identified himself and Apollos as servants through whom you believed Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, he'll go on to say, we're nothing. We don't cause growth. We're just the instrument that God picks up and we're dispensable. We're expendable. We just work as he tells us. We serve. Well, the reality is this is actually a different word. It's not the same word as chapter 3, verse 5. There the word is diakonos. It's where we get the term deacon from. Maybe you know that, right? And the emphasis there is on the act of serving and carrying out the task. But here, the word is actually different. It's not diakonos, it's rather uperitas. It it emphasizes not the work of a servant, 
But instead, here's what's interesting. The thrust of this word is it emphasizes the position of a servant. That's why I say, that's why this first point is, look, you're, you're not in the position to judge. This word emphasizes not so much even what you do, but it emphasizes where you fall in sort of the hierarchy of authority. And, and this, it, it, this speaks of a servant who is the bottom rung, <laughs> the one who receives orders from everyone else. That's the emphasis of this word. It was actually originally used uh, to refer to the lowest level of uh, those who served in the lowest level of, the, of a ship, um, manning the oars who rowed on command, right? MacArthur says they were the lowest galley slaves. The under rowers is literally how you could translate this. But over time, the, the term came simply to refer to a subordinate of any kind to to those under the authority of another, and so Paul's whole point here with this ver- or word is that we have no authority as servants to evaluate one another. We're subordinates who answer to someone higher, and so the question is, who do we answer to specifically? Then, who does have the authority? Well, notice Paul says we're servants of Christ. Christian, you have no authority. Christ is all authority. He's the one. He's the one who has all authority to judge. Look, Jesus said it himself in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, that is why we do missions. (laughs) That is why we serve. Therefore, he, he alone, Christ alone, is in the position to make comparisons and judgments of his slaves, not you and I. Look, you can't look across the aisle and say, hmm, let me size that person up. It doesn't matter what you think. You're not the authority. It only matters what Jesus thinks of that person. You're not in the right position to... Make judgments of another fellow servant. I can't, I can't help but think of Paul's language in Romans 14, verse 4, because it makes this very same point rather directly. He says there, here's the question. Who are you? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Listen, slaves, superitas, they answer to their master alone, not to other who paratos. But notice, not only does Paul call us servants, but he also uses another term here. He calls us stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. Why this term then? The word for steward refers to a household manager. It's someone who's been put in charge of another person's estate or property or things or treasure. The most famous example in Scripture perhaps would be um, Joseph. You remember Joseph? Who was given charge over Potiphar's house and all of Potiphar's things. If you remember that story in um, the latter half of Genesis. And while this person would, 
would have, unlike the, the slave mentioned, this person would, would have some delegated authority over even other slaves in the house. Paul's, that's, Paul's point with this word is slightly different. It's not so much an issue of authority anymore as it is responsibility and accountability to someone else, right? It's an issue of ownership. In other words, stewards, here's the point, don't actually own what they're guarding or taking care of. They, they don't actually, it doesn't belong to them. Stewards don't actually have that which they're stewarding. They simply are looking after that which belongs to someone else. And so what it is, what is it here that Paul says that we care for as stewards? Notice, we are stewards of the mysteries. The mysteries which belong not to us, but to God. And mysteries, by the way, refer to those things which are revealed to us through God's word. Uh, we saw this, if you can remember, way back in chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul said, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. It's that idea of what he reveals to us. It's that wisdom that was locked away in the eternal mind of God that he has to speak to us and teach to us by the power of the Spirit, right? Those are the mysteries spoken of here in context. Those are the, the things found in the, the depths and the mind of God, which he's now revealed to us, including the gospel, by the Spirit through his word. And these truths, listen, belong not to us, but to God. They're his possession. Christian, that is what you are. You are a steward. Do you see yourself as this? You are a steward of the Word of God, of truth that has been revealed and entrusted to you to care for and guard and to share and to use. But let us be clear. You are not the owner of those truths. You you can't carry them around, change the standard, and beat other people with them necessarily, that is not how you treat the Word of God. It's not yours to do with however you like. God owns them. The mysteries are of God, and we're simply stewards. He's entrusted them to us. And so we, we care for them with all diligence and humility, realizing that this does not belong to me, this truth. I am bound to it as much as they are bound to it. And so this is why as Christians, look, we don't have the freedom or the right or the privilege or the authority to change the message of the gospel. It doesn't belong to us ultimately. It, does, it doesn't originate with us. The standard isn't determined by us. We aren't the law givers. In fact, listen to James 4, verses 11 and 12, where James warns against the same thing. He says, Do not speak against one another, brother, and he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, listen to how he puts it, speaks against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Look, you'd, you'd be, you're placing yourself over top of that. And then he has to say this. Look, there's only one lawgiver. Everybody else is below the standard. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one God who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? It's the same idea. The standard of God's word and law isn't yours, so don't act like it belongs to you. There's only one lawgiver and judge. You're simply a steward. Don't go around auditing other stewards as though you're above the law. You see what Paul's doing now? He, he's reminding us here in these first two verses that we cannot call to account fellow slaves and stewards because we're not masters and we're not owners. We're in no position to compare ourselves with other people, nor should we want to. See, you and I are in no position to judge or evaluate the faithfulness of another brother or sister as though you had that authority. That's not your job. It's not your job as an under rower and a household manager. And that's a humbling reality, isn't it? It's a humbling reminder. But it's also, listen, a freeing reality too because it means that I have one job to do, right? See, it doesn't really matter what all the other stewards and servants and slaves are doing. It doesn't really even matter what all the other stewards and slaves think about what we're doing because notice next verse 2. What Paul says is from that position then is what is our role and responsibility as stewards and slaves, verse 2 says, in this case, moreover, or even what is left, what is remaining, all that is left for you to do, it is required of stewards, or, or literally it is sought in stewards that one be found trustworthy, that you be found faithful. That's all you need concern yourself about. Look, I love how simple this is, right? Look, if you ever get caught in that trap of just comparing yourself with other people, this is so helpful to just remind yourself, look, I don't need to be doing that because I, I, I'd have no authority. I, I am not in the position to do that. I just need to concern myself with being found faithful. Look, that simplifies things. That frees up a burdened conscience. One commentary writes, God requires faithfulness, not eloquence or any other form of human wisdom. And that's right. What God looks for in his stewards is not that they're more impressive than the other guy. You know, God's not sitting there going, well, your brother... Well, look at that guy. We're not, try, we're not here to try to be cooler, more influential, more engaging, more successful, more fruitful than the next guy, than the next steward standing next to me in line. That's not your job. What does that matter to you? 
What God looks for is this single quality that you are faithful, that you're trustworthy with what He has entrusted to you. That's all you need to think about. This this clarifies then for us what is our job and what is God's job. You see, Paul says, in effect, we're not to be finding others faithful, right? No, the language is we should be striving ourselves to be found faithful by God. Testing the fidelity of others is not your job. It's not your position. You have no authority to do so. In other words, our role as servants and stewards is not to be the judge of others, but is to be judged by our master, whom Paul will eventually identify in verse 4, if you look ahead, as none other than the Lord. So listen, here's the point. Your concern in this life should not be constantly seeing how you square with other people. Listen, guys, everybody is different. Everybody is different. Nobody is exactly the same. And yet every one of you is made in the image of God and every one of you is gifted with different gifts. God has has composed the body so with a variety of those who make it up, right? He's gifted us all uniquely. The language of Scripture is some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. God has allotted, Romans 12, 3, to each a measure of faith. And so think about it. If all I'm required to do is to be faithful, then faithfulness for me might look like this and produce this, while faithfulness for someone else is going to look and produce something else. And so I don't need to go, well, but I... I thought I was being faithful. I didn't. What I produced doesn't look like what they produced. What is going on? I don't need to think about that. All I need to think about is how has God gifted me? I need to maximize that. What has He gifted me with? I need to be faithful to that. And on the surface, then to have for someone, someone could seem from outward experience, right? To, to, to have more ministry success even than another person, but still be in God's eyes actually less faithful than another person because they didn't maximize all that God entrusted to. So, beloved, don't measure by outward appearances, be faithful. Don't concern yourself with the pride of horizontal comparison. It's not your job to figure out where you rank in the kingdom. Do you ever do that? Isn't it amazing how you can do that even with good things? Even as I I found this out in seminary, right? You start competing with the, the student next to you. Or even now, like in ministry, you just start thinking, well, that guy I graduated with, he's a senior pastor now and his church is going with it's like, what, why? What does that matter? Who cares? God says, you be faithful. You be faithful. So Paul reminds us first that we're not in the right position to judge one another. But notice next, humbling reminder number two, uh, you, don't, you don't have all the right knowledge to judge one another. Notice verses three and four. 
But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Now, if Paul's first reminder was about our humble position, this second reminder is about our humble knowledge. In other words, he's saying this, look, not only do you need to think rightly, soberly, and humbly about who you are, you also need to think rightly and soberly and humbly about what you think you know. (laughs) Because you don't know all that you think you know. Notice how he makes this point first. What Paul notice what Paul thinks of all human evaluations and examinations. And here's the spoiler alert again. They're limited. They're limited and they're fallible. Verse three, but to me it is a very small thing, very small that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Um, The the phrase here, a very small thing, uh, it translates one word that simply means of the least consequence, right? In other words, for Paul to be examined by people, such as the Corinthians or anybody else for that matter, was a trivial thing in his mind. To, to him, it was something he could very easily brush off. It, 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 was, it was water off a duck's back, so to speak. It wasn't this huge, oppressive, all-consuming weight that he carried around on his back like a burden that he's unable to shake. It, it wasn't there every time he turned around. Let me ask you, is that your experience? You know, what other people think of you? Are you consumed by that? Because if you are, you need to learn what Paul knows here. Are you concerned about how you come across to other people? What they think of you, this self-awareness, this self-image. Look, Paul says, what does that matter? It's a very small thing. The word here for examine... It's actually a courtroom term. It's related to the term to judge, but it's it's a little bit different. It, and and here's the nuance. It's it means to scrutinize something very carefully, and it, it and it refers to the process of critiquing and investigating and nitpicking in order to draw a conclusion. This isn't speaking of the conclusion, but it is speaking of that process of just examining something to death. It's evaluation language. It's, it's putting somebody on trial, like on the witness stand, right? Cross-examining that person. And this word is used only 16 times in the New Testament. Ten times it's in 1 Corinthians. You see, Paul was especially put under the microscope by the Corinthians out of all the places that he ministered. And yet Paul is able to say here that it matters little to him what they, what they scrutinized him for. It mattered little to him that they were so critical of him. And you say, well, how is he able to say that, right? How can I develop that same kind of 
tough skin, right? Is Paul just being proud and arrogant or insensitive to the opinion of others? You know, we know people like that too, right? It's just like, I don't care what you think, you know? And I would say, not necessarily. We need to understand what he means here. It's not that Paul didn't care about what others thought of him in his ministry. It's not even to say that he wasn't or couldn't be hurt or disappointed at times or burdened about other people. You see that in 2 Corinthians very clearly. But the point here, here in this context, is that compared to God's scrutiny... Right? That's what he says at the end of verse 4. But, but it's, it's the Lord who examines me. That's the issue. Compared to God's evaluation, God's examination, human criticisms fall woefully short. They're inaccurate. They're fallible. Human opinions, in light of all that God knows, I mean, are myopic. They're short-sighted. They're, it's not the full picture oftentimes. That's what he means here. Um, and how do I know that's what he means? Because notice, he says this even of his own self-evaluation. Isn't that interesting? Verse 3, the end of verse 3, in fact, I do not even examine myself. What is going on there? Paul's saying, look, I, what he means by that is I, just as I think little of, you know, what other people conclude about me in the same way, I think I give very little weight. That's a good idea, right? That's the, I give very little weight to what I even think about me as if that were the definitive truth and the full picture. Um, Notice the explanation in verse 4. Why we could say this is what he means. Look at verse 4. And this is so helpful because it's a clarification. For or because I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, Paul had a clear conscience. He he wasn't aware of anything that he'd done wrong or sinned in any way in his ministry. And yet, even then, notice, he says, I'm not by that acquitted. I'm not by that justified. Just because I have a clear conscience doesn't mean that um, I'm completely clear and vindicated as though my evaluation is so thorough and accurate that I can say, yeah, nothing. I didn't miss anything. So this clarifies for us why Paul's thought so little about human evaluations, including his own. Because even after examining himself and coming up clean, finding nothing to be critical of, Paul says, look, he knew in humility, look, that doesn't mean that I'm justified. That doesn't mean I'm free of guilt. That doesn't mean I haven't overlooked something. Why? Because human evaluations are such. They're, they're, they're all liable to um, be fallible. They're all liable to being partial. And look, we, we know this, don't we? Scripture is so clear about why it is even notoriously hard to examine ourselves accurately, right? 
Matthew 7, because we have a massive log of self-righteousness at times sticking out of our face. And so, look, the, 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 the point is this. Human evaluations, even our own evaluations of ourselves, they can, they're, they're, we have to conclude with Paul here that they are not the full picture. Um, one writer says, we're not justified by our own good opinion of ourselves because our own opinions may not be justified. A good conscience is a soft pillow, as the Proverbs has it, but it might be a pillow of self-deception. The point here is all human evaluations are flawed. Look, even our own consciences can be wrong and fallible when we think it is clean and clear. So another writer says this, Paul does not therefore advocate a thick-skinned indifference to public opinion. His point is a different one, namely its fallibility, relativity, and limits which make it an unreliable guide on which to depend. And that's good. Listen, the next time you look over at someone and you say, I think this of them, just remember, you you don't see the full picture. You might be dead wrong. You you could be dead wrong about yourself. And so what what do you think when others come and say, man, you are such a fill-in-the-blank. How how much weight do you give that, right? Um, We have that phrase, like you take, take it with a grain of salt, right? I don't even know what that means, but (laughs) I'm imagining it means how much a grain of salt weighs, that's how much you should give it significance. I don't know. Somebody correct me. Is that kind of how, what it means? Maybe. Hey, it sounds great. Look, it works for the sermon. I'm going to run with it. Look, a small thing. (laughs) It matters little. It matters little. Look, again, Paul didn't say nothing, right? So it's not that Paul's saying, look, I don't. There is no validity in any of those things, right? Anytime, if you're gonna, if you're, if you're humble, like if you truly are humble, like you're gonna, you're gonna consider a criticism, aren't you? And you're gonna ask the question, well, is there some truth to that that I need to take into to heart so that I might change? But th- that, that's not the context here. You understand what Paul is saying? He's just saying, look, remember when you seek to evaluate other people. And when other people evaluate you, and even when you try to evaluate yourself, just know, always put in those helper words, it seems like. Because it's, it, you, you cannot be definitive about those things. Um, only the Lord can. So notice how he ends verse 4. That's exactly what he says. But the one who, you could say, really examines me. The one who really knows is the Lord. In other words, unlike human examinations, God's scrutiny is perfect, it is omniscient, and it is complete. Only He sees the full picture and everything that is done in secret. Only God sees those things. Only He can take those into account. Only He can factor in those things and put two people side by side and weigh them in the balances and say at the end of the day, truly, this person comes out ahead in this area. Only God can do that. We can't do that. As much as we try, 
Psalm 11, verse 4, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Only God sees with perfect vision. Only his examination really matters and counts. Only he can say, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, that he has searched us and known us. That he knows us when we sit down, when we rise up. He understands our thoughts from afar. He scrutinizes our path, our lying down. He's intimately acquainted with all our ways. Only God can say that. Even before there's a word on our tongues, behold, God knows it all. And the psalmist will say there in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. You know what he's saying there? Only God can say those things. No man can claim that knowledge, not even himself, about himself. And so Gordon Fee writes, his personal, Paul's personal evaluations of his own performance are irrelevant. What his master thinks is what counts. Guys, we can't ultimately evaluate one another's faithfulness even because our evaluation isn't perfectly accurate. So let me, let me ask you again. And do you, do you ever struggle with being overly concerned with what other people think of you? And let me, here, here's how it's tested, right? It's tested when two things come our way. Criticism and praise. That's how it's tested. You know, do, do either of those things like just have the potential to um, push you off your rocker? <laughs> to, to throw your life out of whack and out of balance? Like more than throwing a grain of sand on your arm would be? Like, like we, we should be that way where it, it, it should hit us and just fall to the ground and we just keep walking. Like some of you, it's that grain of salt hits your shoulder and it's like you just got shot in the face by a shotgun. And, and Paul is saying here, no, that is not the way to walk the Christian life. That's not the way to live the Christian life. You know, one of a um, friend and pastor said this in this passage, he says this then, Summarize verses 3 and 4. It's good when Christians speak well of us, but it's better when our conscience doesn't accuse us, but it's best when our Lord judges us to be faithful. It's so good. So remember, you're not in the right position to judge. You don't have the authority. Think of yourself rightly. Be sober about your assessment, self-assessment. And you don't have all the right knowledge to judge. You don't have all the information. You're not God. You don't know. You don't see the things done in secret. You don't discern the motives. And finally, last, very quickly, verse 5, humbling reminder number 3, it's not the right time to judge one another. You know, you can't, in other words, make final evaluations because it's not, they're not final. Notice what Paul says, therefore, he concludes then on the basis of the first two even, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts and then. 
and then each man's praise will come to him from God. You know, here he encourages thinking rightly and humbly about the season in which you live. You know, you remember 1 Peter 5, you know, Peter would say, look, like you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. But then he adds this, at the proper time. Right? You don't take that into your own hands. You don't draw premature conclusions and judgments about things. You wait on the Lord. I mean, the, what's at issue here is the humility that's expressed in patient trust that God will vindicate, that the truth will come out in the end, that someday it will be clear, whatever it looks like out there right now, if that person looks more popular, if that person looks more effective, if that over here, and you're saying, man, I'm so tempted to just envy because of outward appearance. Paul says, well, just wait on, hang on a second. It is too early to know. The command here is literally do not judge. It's refrain or cease from your constant, continual judging and evaluating and judging and evaluating and scrutinizing of motives. And Paul says, stop that. One writer says this, of course, just to clarify, does not demand the suspension of all discernment. Um, Because it is interesting, like in the very next Two chapters, chapter 5, Paul is actually going to say in verse 12 that, that we are to judge those inside the church when he's speaking of the one who is in that incestuous relationship, right? And he, he says, look, I've already judged that guy. I've... So there is a sense in which we, we, we can judge, depending on what we mean by that word. In other words, we can make evaluations on what is right And what is wrong, we can make evaluations to discern, even in the moment, truth from error. We have to be able to in order to live the Christian life, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he'll even say, he'll even go on to say, look, do do you not know, verse 2, the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And so he, he kind of indicts them, even in chapter 6, for not being able to discern and settle issues or judge sort of certain disputes even within the church. So it's not that Paul's saying, no, throw all judgment out the window, throw all discernment out the window. No, this is, this is the context. Paul's not prohibiting discernment between truth and error, sin and righteousness, right or wrong. He's saying this, that we can't ultimately judge another man's faithfulness to God so as to make a final assessment and compare ourselves with them and say, who's better? That's what he's talking about here. To do so before Christ returns, Paul says, is premature. The issue here is clearly one of timing. It's one of the, the final judgment in this last verse, right? Paul is concerned about premature judgment 
and comparison. This is what he means then by the phrase before the time. Don't go passing judgment before the time. In our early in verse 3, the word for court was actually the word, uh, you know, he says there, um, it's a small thing I may be examined by you or by any human court. It's actually the word for day. You might see it in your margins there. In other words, Paul was not concerned about judgment from men during the days of human courts. Paul was more concerned. Paul had his sights set on the coming day when the Lord would return. Listen, we are so good at drawing premature conclusions, aren't we? And speculating about other people's motives and why they did this and what. Look, if you've ever got caught in that trap, you just need to stop. Paul says, stop it. Paul's point here is that we are wise not to jump to conclusions before we have clarity. So when will clarity come? Notice. Clearly, he says, there's a time when clarity will be had, when judgment will be entirely appropriate because everything will have been laid bare. And that time is then when the Lord comes. Because at that time, everything will be objective. Notice what happens when the Lord comes. Paul says, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. You see, there are, there are things, listen, that you can't see and don't know right now that will appear in the last day. And so your judgment now is a judgment ignorant of those factors. We have to at least say that much. But on that day, when Christ returns, it'll all be clear. It'll all be out there. It'll be open for all to see. Paul describes that day, Romans 2 verse 16, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus on that day. It will be as Hebrews 4.13 describes truly, where no creature will be hidden from his sight, where all things will be laid and open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All that was unseen to us as human evaluators and examinators, I just made up a word there, will be seen clearly on that day. Beloved, do you, do you think you see things as they really are right now? Do you, do you really think that? Let Paul remind you that there's so much more that you don't see, that the Lord does see, that one day everyone will see. And notice then and only then, each man's praise will come to him from God. Do you seek that praise? Or are you, are you more controlled by the fleeting, premature, fallible praise of men? 
Let me, let me just close by, ask, by reading another section out of Tony Ranke's book here. In this application to our social media habits, it's too good not to read. He says this. The buzz of social approval has conditioned us to feed on regular microbursts of validation given by every like, favorite, retweet, or link. This new psychological conditioning means that our lives become more dependent on the moment-by-moment approval of others. The problem is not just that we need to turn away from these microbursts of approval, but that we must deprogram ourselves from this online hunger. If we don't detox these habits, we will go on seeking intimacy by reproducing ourselves, binging on man's approval, and starting each day with an approval hangover. Then we need the antidote of new affirmation from our friends to keep convincing ourselves that our lives are meaningful. This is tragic. This is wasted reward. And listen to this last sentence. The solid praise we expect from God is based on actions now largely unseen, unposted, unshared. The whimsical praise we seek online is based on what we project. We cannot neglect this contrast. Friends, what praise do you live for? Which praise do you consider of most consequence and which of least consequence? May we be like the Apostle Paul here, who reminds us in his attempt to discourage us from the pride of horizontal comparison, look, you are not in the right position to judge one another. Be sober about who you are. Evaluate yourself rightly. You're just a servant. You're just a steward. Just be faithful. And not only that, you don't have all the information to judge each other rightly. I mean, your, your, your insights are limited. They're fallible. And so don't judge before the time. It's not the right time. Verse 5. I've gone long enough. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for this penetrating passage. Lord, it, it meets us in so many different ways, so many applications and implications. May you seal these truths to our hearts. Let us to remember, um, let us to adopt the mindset the Apostle Paul had here, Lord, that, that we might be concerned chiefly and only with what you think, with, with Christ, our true auditor, our master, our owner, our Lord, who will one day come again and give praise where praise is due. Father, cause us to be those who focus on pleasing you and you alone in the secret places. Lord, help us to run from every impulse to elevate and um, ourselves to seek our own glory and to compare ourselves sinfully with others. Lord, and guard us, Father, from the instability of anchoring our moods to what other people think of us. Um, 
But may we be steady because we know who we are in Christ and we know who will judge us in the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.